Welcome to Talking Biotech, the podcast dedicated to exploring the latest advancements in biotechnology, sponsored by Calabra, the R&D software that accelerates scientific discovery with AI. Each week, we'll dive into the latest innovations and discoveries with industry leaders and pioneers. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulta. I want to see science serve a useful purpose to improve the standard of living for all people. Why is anyone fighting food advance? A very small percentage of the world's population is fortunate enough to have the luxury of turning down food. We've arranged a society based on science and technology. There was nobody who understands anything about science and technology. You can't build a peaceful world on empty stomachs and human misery. You're listening to Talking Biotech, a weekly podcast illuminating issues in agricultural and medical biotechnology. Your questions and concerns are addressed using a science-based approach with the goal of driving discovery to application with communication. Now here's your host, Dr. Kevin Folta. Welcome to the Talking Biotech Podcast. It's the podcast that examines breakthroughs in agriculture and medicine with a focus on biotechnology. We cover stories of genetic improvements that can help people and help the planet. I'm Kevin Fulta, and today our guest comes from Michigan State University. Our guest today is a potato breeder, uh, Dr. David Douches, who's in the, the Department of Plant, Soil, and Microbial Sciences uh, up in East Lansing, Michigan. Uh, welcome to the podcast, Dave. Well, thank you, Kevin. Yeah, it's really great to have you aboard. Uh, you're, um, you were a request, so somebody wanted to uh, suggested that you'd be an excellent person to hear from. So here we go. <laughs> you know, we heard a little bit about the origins about uh, potato domestication and and how potato was uh, originally bred way back in episode s- uh, seven with Doctor David Spooner. And today, I'd like to focus more on breeding and what is the next round of genetics Im- and improvements. So. I'm always blown away by potatoes variation, you know, but we don't really see that in the grocery store. We see a really narrow thing that we call potato, um, that French fry potato. As a breeder, you harness variation um, and put it in the new varieties. And so what, what are the biggest priorities for potato breeders these days? Well, uh, potato breeders are really tend to focus on uh, market class traits. It's, we have to really breed for the quality of the market class, and so those market classes would be the table or the uh, French fry processing or the chip processing markets are the three major areas. And so, but from a production point of view, we tend to focus on a lot of the biotic resistances. We need uh, resistance to the pathogens, to the viruses, to insects, and to the nematodes. Wow. And so what exactly does your program focus on? Well, our major market class in Michigan is the chip processing potato. That makes up over three quarters of our uh, production in the state and uh, makes us actually the the top state for producing chip processing potatoes. And, um, and, but we, we're, our farmers face the late blight disease and potato scab, which is a soil borne, um, uh, organism 
as well as the Colorado potato beetle and the, the potato virus Y. And it's really interesting that potatoes coming from Michigan, because most people don't think of Michigan as a potato state. I think, you know, but so, but Wisconsin, uh, Michigan, um, even Florida, we're number nine. Uh, So what are some of the attributes that really make Michigan an appropriate place to grow potatoes? Well, actually, before the uh, Pacific Northwest became the major potato production region in the country, Michigan was one of the top uh, potato states. And I want to say back in the 1920s and 30s, and uh, there was uh, a lot more acreage than there is today. But the acreage today is focused on our on our sandy soils that are made by the glaciers. We have an abundance of uh, groundwater to help irrigate the crop. And we have a a moderate climate uh, due to the Great Lakes. And so it allows us to uh, grow a nice, healthy crop of potatoes and then store them all winter. And another thing about potatoes that has always been intriguing to me has been the work of Luther Burbank. So Luther Burbank was a very prolific plant breeder back in the mid, say, 1850s, right? And and, and what were his contributions to potatoes? Well, um, I was always considered Luther Burbank one of my favorite biographies when I was a kid. And uh, it's kind of funny that I did end up in potatoes. And I think he's quite famous for his uh, potato variety, the Burbank potato. And that was bred in the 1870s. And uh, he was, uh, in my opinion, and probably many potato breeders' opinions, uh, quite a lucky guy because he was able to uh, select uh, the most popular variety in the United States from only a, a handful of, uh, of progeny that were from a, a fruit that he found in his garden. And... Uh, so that, that uh, lucky combination uh, still is in production today. However, it was a skin mutation that gave it that uh, tougher, russet skin that's, that, that you see in the markets now. Okay, so russet, russet is yes. a durable skin mutation. Yes. Ah, okay. And so when you talk about potatoes and how he was lucky to find a fruit, you know, this is something people don't know about potato breeding including myself really is how do you get potato seeds not not like seed potatoes like they talk about the vegetative pieces they put in the ground to grow a plant but what are the seeds of a potato plant like and how comes we never see them well the uh, so the potato that we grow here in the u.s and in many parts of the world is actually a, a polyploid or a tetraploid crop and many of the the varieties especially back in the uh, 1800s had a lot of fertility problems. So making crosses was quite difficult. There was a lot of male sterility. And so finding fruit and being able to make crosses was uh, uh, somewhat limited. And through, I think, the efforts of breeders in the 20th century, we've been able to improve the fertility. But uh, um, so, so Burbank found a, 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 an open pollinated fruit in the garden. And so bees tend to pollinate the fruit in the field or pen- pollinate the flowers in the field that that could lead to fruit and um and so this this variety was selected out of i think 20 something progeny that were grown in his garden and that's just uh, unbelievable um probability to have that kind of success from a small sample like that we grow <laughs> sixty-five thousand seedlings a year trying to look for uh good selections 
and he he grow grow a couple dozen and got got a a great variety. Yeah, it was it, the story is really cool, and it's it's encapsulated in a book called uh, Garden of Invention. And uh, he they talk about how it was some some ridiculously small number, like seventeen plants, and how he was watching the fruit and wasn't sure when to harvest it for a long time, and eventually it either it disappeared and. Uh, he thought that maybe some animal took it, but it must have just fallen off. Or there were some really interesting angles of the story that I need to revisit. And and actually, uh, back in the the nineties, we did a, a marker analysis on um, Russell Burbank and looked at the early rose, which is the mother of there of that uh, variety. And and through the marker analysis, showed that it was actually a cross pollination that some pollen was brought in from the outside rather than a self-pollination that led to the Burbank variety. Wow, this is, you know, potatoes are really fascinating and I get I really get charged up about them because I love looking at all the variation that you see in the wild varieties. And last week we talked about sweet potatoes and uh the variation there, but I think even uh regular potato has so many um such a greater variety of, of skin colors and shapes and sizes and all of this stuff that comes from its uh, range of domestication and in areas in the Andes. But what are some of the other traits that are there that maybe breeders are trying to reintroduce to the domesticated potato? Well, um, I'm not sure exactly what Dave Spooner said in his uh, talk, but he has identified uh, the wild potatoes to have about 100 species for us to work with. And many of these, in a, from a breeding point of view, are crossable and allows us to um, incorporate the traits from those wild species into the cultivated. So we look at the, the wild species as a gold mine. You know, that all we have to do is kind of dig in and look for these resistances, which are, seem to be lacking in our cultivated gene pool. So resistance to the late blight, resistance to the viruses and the insects and nematodes are, were all found in the wild species. And you mentioned late blight, and you mentioned this earlier as a problem in Michigan. What are you doing to uh, to resolve that? Is that um, something where you're trying to breed in resistance from uh, naturally occurring varieties? Oh, yes. Um, we've been uh, using a number of different species and also some uh, unadapted cultivated germplasm from, from, from other parts of the world because we really need a combination of resistance genes rather than one resistance gene to tackle that pathogen. And I guess think about late blight, you know, here in the industrialized world, there's the capacity to manage the fungus with, uh, with fungicides, things like that. But, you know, potatoes pretty important throughout the world in different areas. And can you give me some idea or maybe talk a little bit about where, uh, where the potato is grown in the world and where it is really used as a staple. And are they currently focusing any efforts on trying to use this uh, introgression of the wild trait to improve those resources? Well, uh, the, the potato is a world crop. And actually, if you uh, were to ask the question, you'll find out that it's grown in just about every country in, in the world. And so, uh, but in some, in many places in the world, uh, late blight uh, rears its ugly head because of the environmental conditions. You have um, uh, um, moisture in the field, and the and the foliage uh, tends to be uh, susceptible 
to the pathogen if it if it kind of works its way into that area and uh, so the the pathogen can in many places survive over the winter on on potatoes that were kind of left in the um, in the fields or in tubers that are underground and then come back the next year and attack the crop when the right conditions hit so so late blight's a problem all around the world the the US and Europe uh, where we have a lot of uh, good modern farming techniques they do apply protective fungicides and and keep the the pathogen at bay but in some in some parts of the world especially developing countries they may not have access to good fungicides nor the equipment to apply them well or they or they they're really putting them there's them personally at risk by applying them without very good uh, application equipment and what about um, other other issues in potato that really imperil its uh, propagation throughout the world? Things like insects, or uh, are there even opportunities to improve it, not just from threats, but maybe better opportunity to improve its nutrient content? Well, um, so I mentioned that we're you know working on the the biotic stresses, and so we are working on those uh, diseases and the insect resistance and the viruses, but. Uh, and, and that's a long, long-term work. We've got combinations of things coming together, but the insect resistance has been the hardest. But we're, I have a, a student, um, Natalie Kirk Weiland, who's working on that diligently now, and we're tackling that using a, a, a handful of wild species, trying to capitalize on some uh, different mechanisms, the glycoalkaloids and the trichome methods, and then also exploring some other metabolites. So, so I'm real excited about that work that we're moving forward. The nutrient aspects of the potato is kind of an interesting area because potato um, by itself is, is actually a, a quite nutritious. And probably most people don't realize, but the potato is high in potassium and uh, has more potassium than a banana. People always hear about bananas. And, um, and then it's also high in vitamin C, and that was well known early early days that on on board ships that that was a way to uh, uh, fend off the uh, scurvy so uh, vitamin C is a good part of potato and it also has a balanced protein and no fat it's it's how we how we cook the potato that uh, maybe makes it a little fattier but the breeders have been working on uh, adding anthocyanins carotenoids into the potato to try to boost the antioxidant levels um, and so that results in yellow flesh potatoes or, or pigmented, you know, red or, or purple uh, flesh potatoes. And I've, I've been working on some of those in my program, and we're uh, in the process of releasing a few of those. We, we've released a couple already, and, and we have more in the pipeline. So when you say you've released them, and this is something maybe we just need to clarify for the listeners, that plant breeders go through a, a process of kind of uh, of releasing material, and uh, it means uh, uh, kind of making it formally available for growers to pick up, but also has some protections for you as a plant breeder since it's a vegetatively propagated um, organism, right? Is, can you explain a little bit more about that? Yeah, so... Uh so we actually, it's about a, at least a 10-year process from the time we make a cross till be, before we have enough data to know whether we have a selection that is worth releasing to the farmers. Uh, we wanted to have, we don't want to have any surprises and send it out to the farmers and find out that it has some uh, defects that uh, 
maybe ruin its uh, ability to be produced on a farm or, or have some post-harvest defects. So we, we do a lot of analysis doing uh, running trials to, to make sure that those uh, problems are limited. So, um, so potatoes vegetatively propagated and so we also, the university um, wants to, uh, you know, protect the, this uh, germplasm. And so we um, apply for a plant variety protection or maybe use trademarks to, um, to, to provide some type of protection. But it's also for the, um, the, the seed producers to uh, sell that variety and know that they, that they have a backing of the university in terms of the uh, – the quality and, and name of that variety. Yeah, it's really an important point. I know we do a lot of that here, and mo- many people are surprised to hear that universities have protections in place for their plants. But at the same time, it's really important for us because it allows us to have um, protection of the material. I mean, as you say, it takes 10 years to come up with a new variety. And I know our strawberry breeders and blueberry and, and, you know, certainly citrus, it probably costs a million dollars at least to generate a new variety. So it's good to not have to give it away and maybe be able to put something back to the program. But um, it's, it's uh, like about how much do you think it costs to generate a new potato variety if you think about land use and fertilizer and personnel and everything else? Yeah, so so you have a you know this ten plus year queue of of moving material through, and you know you, the the cost of running a program with the personnel and the land costs and everything, you're you're probably uh, spending half a million dollars a year between uh, all the all the work and infrastructure that's going on. And, and do you think that there's a, a need for more potato breeders? So, if you had students here or listening, or anyone in you know in a currently considering their next career, plant breeding is a hot place. How does it look for potato breeders? Well, uh, there um, there's about a, a dozen potato breeders in the United States, and uh, a few of them are approaching retirement. But the, the private sector is getting interested in doing some breeding. So, I think there's opportunities out there but it's kind of a unique crop uh, because it's vegetatively propagated so a lot of the seed companies haven't invested in it in the past as much as they might in the future um, one of the uh, one of the um, seed companies has actually taken up potato breeding at the diploid level which and to make it actually a, a seed propagated f1 hybrid crop and so I I think that's the future of potatoes, and we're actually investing in that diploid breeding process ourselves because we see that as maybe a more efficient way to breed potatoes and maybe the way of the future. Well, that's a, that's an exciting turn for this because I think we're seeing that with a couple other crops as well. Folks are talking about seed propagation of strawberry and bananas and a number of other ones. So maybe the next wave is actually getting simpler in terms of genetic complexity. So let's take a break right here, and then uh, we'll come back in just a couple minutes. We're talking with Professor David Douches at the University, or I'm sorry, Michigan State University in East Lansing, Michigan. A uh, potato breeder talking about the past, present, and future of potato breeding. This is the Talking Biotech Podcast, and we'll be back in just a minute. Greetings, Talking Biotech aficionados, and thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. Thanks to you, 
You've written great, wonderful reviews on iTunes, and it's quite a beacon to the podcast surfer. Shows your amazing support for this mofo of a science show. And special thanks to you who dared to accept my challenge and got that talking biotech tattoo. It's appreciated, but guess what? That tattoo lasts a really long time. It's my hope that someday, a few decades from now, we can look at your dermal commitment to a science podcast and ridicule you for defacing your flesh. Our hope is that your days in assisted living will use that tat as a conversation starter, reminding the elderly of the dark ages when science was shunned for flashy marketing and myth that placed fear over reason. However, with the support of so many listeners, we're moving innovation to application and helping people and planet along the way. So, tell a friend, write a review on iTunes, and most of all, share the beautiful science that we learn from the expert guests that kindly share their expertise here on the Talking Biotech Podcast. So we're back on the Talking Biotech Podcast today, talking to Professor David Douches of Michigan State University up in East Lansing, a potato breeder, and we're talking about genetic improvements of potatoes, past, present, and future. And we talked a little bit about um, about potatoes and food security, but where exactly are they a common staple? Are there any places in the world that you can point to where where they really are a central part of the diet? Well, uh, the potato is, is important to the U.S. and to the European uh, diets. But in the developing world uh, countries, India and China and Bangladesh, you know, so South Asia, Southeast Asia are major countries that are producing potatoes to feed their populations. And I, and I know that you've had um, work in Bangladesh and, and some efforts that you've participated in with USAID could you tell us a little bit about those efforts? Uh, yes. Uh, we Right now, we currently have a USAID-funded project to develop late-plate-resistant potatoes for Bangladesh. What's really interesting about Bangladesh is they're a, a small country about the size of Michi- the lower peninsula of Michigan, but they have over 160 million people. Mm-hmm. So they're a country that is really concerned about food security, and they're growing – as many acres of potatoes in Bangladesh as we do in the whole United States. And, uh, and the potatoes is their winter crop that's and many times in rotation with their summer rice crop. So quite fascinating uh, to, 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 to learn that over the years. And uh, so they really need a, a um, potato that they, that they can count on to, to feed their population and they eat it mostly fresh. They don't eat much processed potatoes, not French fries or chips. That's I've never eaten a fresh potato before. You mean you just uh, eat it like an apple or just slice it up? Oh, or no, what? no, when I say fresh, I actually mean that it's uh, not processed in the, in the, by the company. Okay. I don't take apples and our potatoes and eat them like an apple. <laughs> I'm sorry. I thought like you meant, you know, uncooked. Um, I, you know, picture, cause you mentioned earlier more potassium than a banana. I imagined having yeah. one back in my bike Jersey. I could, yeah. you know, yeah. 
But um, so the work you're doing there, though, is really about our genes, which we talked about in an earlier episode of the podcast. Um, And could you tell us a little bit more about the kind of changes that are being made for introduction of improved varieties? Right. So so we're we're uh, tasked with trying to develop a late blight resistant potato for Bangladesh and Indonesia in this USAID project. And uh, so the, tech, the technology is advanced where we have a large number of R genes uh, cloned from potato that will confer late blight resistance. And the research done over the past 10, 12 years, uh, uh, great research that's been done, is telling us that if we can stack three different R genes, ones that are complementary in a way, and get them expressed well in a plant, that we can uh, have a very durable uh, resistance to late bite. The pathogen is uh, is really uh, challenging in that it it will adapt to the resistance genes that are out there. So if you can put together a nice complement of them, the pathogen really has a hard time adapting to that combination. And so that's what we're banking on with our our strategy at the moment. And so uh, we're working with the Simplot Plant Sciences Company. Uh, to generate these potatoes for uh, Bangladesh and Indonesia. And they, they've actually been working with these genes in their own research and, and variety development. Yeah, and we should clarify with, um, you know, our genes, R really means resistance. And we spoke about this in an earlier episode with uh, Professor Jonathan Jones, who talked a little bit about our gene resistance in, and in different crops and namely in potatoes. So, what I'm, what I didn't know about this, I knew that there was a source of R gene resistance from uh, like Solanum bulbo castanum, and maybe a couple other ones. But are they all different alleles or all different R gene types that that you can now stack? That and I think that's what you just told me though. But just to clarify, they're different R genes, but still work against the same pathogen. Yes. So uh, this is really interesting area, in my opinion. In that, if you go start looking in, into potatoes and their R genes, there's hundreds and hundreds of R genes in the potato, and they fall into these hot spots on different chromosomes. And so, the ones on different chromosomes tend to be more genetically different from one another. And so, the strategy is to kind of stack these ones that are genetically diverse, so that you're kind of um, having resistance to a broad range of the Phytophthora isolates that are out there. And so, um, yeah, there's been sequencing done of all these R genes, and so you can kind of plot that out and look and see which ones are more related to the others and and then choose your R genes based upon their their genetic differences. But still, you got to put them in the plant and test their combinations and see if they work. And so that's part of the the research that, that goes on. And you mentioned the Simplot um, company and, and their work in potatoes. They had a few years ago introduced the idea of a transgenic potato that was a non-browning. But I think they had a, um, I'm sure they had a couple of years ago, a second generation of that potato that had late blight resistance. Is that something that's being grown anywhere yet? So their, uh, so they, their first generation of, of GM potatoes um, which actually, uh, I'll, being a potato guy, I'll correct you and say they like to use the term intragenic. Ah, yes, because, yeah. Because um, their genes are non-foreign genes. That their their strategy is to use only potato genes. 
so uh, it's a it's an interesting way of approaching it. So rather than having foreign genes from other organisms, you, we're relying on just native potato genes. So um, okay, so we got so we have these native potato genes that are giving them non-browning and non-bruising in that first generation, and I think that's a pretty good consumer trait and processor and processor trait because it it um, I think has more consumer appeal to not have a browning potato and in your cooking and then also there's less waste in the in the preparation of the potatoes but the, now this next generation has late light resistance in there as, as well as the ability to store at a colder temperatures and so that's um, giving the farmers an added advantage and 2017 is the first commercial crop so there's potatoes planted this year that are giving the farmers protection against uh, the late light disease Wow, that's really great because, as I understand, potatoes can be a little bit intensive with fungicide, can't they? I mean, is this really something that can help the environment as well as the farmer? Right, right, yeah. Uh, so farmers right now will, on a weekly schedule, spray to protect their crops in the more humid parts of the country, like uh, east of the Mississippi. And so that that's a, a lot of management. That's a lot of cost uh, to the per-acre uh, uh, costs that they have in, in producing their potatoes. So being able to reduce the amount of fungicides is a, is a, a savings in money to the farmer, but it's also less fungicides being uh, put into the environment. So I think it's a win-win. Yeah, it's always uh, it's an area that I've always been interested in um, thinking about. We've done similar, similar things with strawberries, but any other really interesting gene editing or uh, any other types of alterations that you're aware of that look like they're on the horizon? Well, um, so I kind of call the Simplot's you know, approach to um, uh, genetic engineering using the, their native genes. I call it Biotech 2.0 because, you know, they to just to uh, separate that from the original transgenic uh, crops that came out. And so it shows that the technology's advanced and, you know, it's not the, the, the same old uh, car that everybody used to drive. It's, a, I think, a new and improved uh, way of, of doing things. And so what's in there also is this, this silencing of a gene so that, that the potato can store at colder temperatures. And that, um, again, offers advantages of reducing food waste because when potatoes can be stored colder, they don't uh, rot as quickly and they'll store longer. And so, um, and they'll also um, uh, reduce the amount of um, undesirable byproducts in the processing of the potato. Yeah, that's uh, that's a in- really interesting trait, and I'm, and I'm glad you brought up the earlier um, the idea that they do this a little differently. They're essentially moving just potato genes into potatoes, things that are sexually compatible. Yet to do the breeding might take tens or twenties or hundreds of years, and being able to move that one gene without moving all of its neighborhood is a way to take in a very much improved variety and add that one extra trait that you couldn't add easily by breeding. And so that's when you brought up the term intragenic, is when we think about traits that we could transmit sexually. Like they're from sexually compatible species, you're not adding something from bacteria or something far out. It's actually just a genetic exchange with a neighboring organism 
variety, you know, or variety or species that could transfer that gene through traditional breeding if we wanted to take many years to do it. Is that kind of right? Is that correct? I would I would totally agree. And for example, the, in Europe, they want they introduced two R genes from two different wild species into uh, cultivated potato. And after 46 years of breeding, they released two varieties. <laughs> yeah, I mean, but but I I love that you said that because I think it really illuminates the 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 job of a plant breeder. I know they've had similar trials with apples and apple scab that to bring in the uh, native resistance from Malus floribunda, or I think it was floribunda, but whatever it was, bringing in the native source into traditional or into cultivated apples took something like 50 or 60 years. And a Dutch group did it in five by using this intragenic approach. And yeah. So, so, so from my opinion, as a plant breeder, the, the transformation technology is a great tool and, and you kind of pull it into the genetic improvement aspects when it it complements breeding in its fullest and whatever happened to those bt potatoes because a lot of people don't realize there were genetically engineered potatoes available commercially for a long time in uh, late 90s uh, maybe not a long time a couple of years and they were reasonably successful but where did they go well so uh i think the potatoes were out about five or six years these uh were Colorado potato beetle resistant potatoes, and some versions of them also had some virus resistance. And the farmers were uh, were quite happy with those potatoes. But uh, I think it in the late 90s there was kind of uh, pressure from some um, activist groups to uh, McDonald's to um, that they were using those potatoes in making their French fries, and so McDonald's you know pulled the plug on it, and so. The farmers went back to using insecticides rather than use uh, the the native BT genes for uh, uh, for the insect control. Wow, I'm going to have to revisit that story. I, I saw a uh, woman from Romania who was kind of with their uh, federal organization, and I guess the uh, Colorado potato beetle is a big problem in Romania and that they were able to control it very well with BT potatoes and actually turned into a huge exporter of potatoes until they joined the EU and oh. they had to give it up. Uh, yeah. That's yeah. Another sad story, but I guess going back just real quickly, when can we expect your purple potatoes and is there a certain variety or name that we might look for? Well, I, I have some purple skin potatoes. I have, I have a variety we call Michigan purple. That's a real, just a iridescent purple skin with a white flesh, and uh, that's actually uh, available. It seems to end up in farm markets here in Michigan and some other places. But um, we're, we have a purple skin with a, a very deep purple flesh. It's like almost inky, inky black. It's so so thick, and uh, and uh, those potatoes are. Um, you know, we're just uh, getting ready to release that, and we're we've kind of uh, sent it out to some seed growers to start uh, producing some seed on that. So hopefully, we'll uh, see it in the commercial markets in the next few years. Yeah, I hope so. That would be really cool. Um, put me on your list because I'd love to be able to. I mean, I saw pictures of it um, that you showed me when I was up there. And it's really, really an amazing-looking potato. I mean, it's not just a little bit of purple. It's like dark purple, like the inside of a like a. It's like a glass of wine. It's gorgeous. Yeah. 
<laughs> yeah, and and I I actually enjoy eating them. Uh, uh, the other year, I I made our Thanksgiving dinner uh, with all these pigmented potatoes. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, see, that's I'm going to do that this year. I'm going to we have uh, access to some uh, purple sweet potatoes that uh, I'm hopefully I'll be able to get my hands on, but. You know, other than that, uh, we just have we have some of the small bag varieties of the small potatoes that have different uh, pigmentation, but they're you know on and off in the stores and you know not really reliable. So I'll keep my eyes peeled. It's a great idea. Yeah. Uh, so if if we wanted to know more about you or your program, is there any place where someone can look on social media or um, or somewhere where you might have some more information? But I have a website, and, and, and so my website is potatobg.css.msu.edu. I've been in the business for uh, many years, and there's so many exciting things going on in the plant breeding world these days, especially in the potatoes for me. And so um, I think the, the future is quite bright for improving the potato in the U.S. and also for our um, developing countries. Yeah, it's really an interesting statement because here we have consumed primarily this one kind of potato for over 140 years. And uh, and to think of the next generation not being a replacement, but being dozens of different replacements, all offering different colors and, and sensory qualities and flavors and nutrition um, for the industrialized world consumer and everywhere. Um, thank you so much for being part of the podcast and hope to see you pretty soon again. Yeah, thanks a lot, Kevin. Thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. Please send your suggestions for guests, comments, or questions to talkingbiotech at gmail.com. Please write a review on iTunes and recommend this podcast to a friend. More downloads and reviews raise the visibility of this podcast and help us reach a wider audience with science. You've been listening to Talking Biotech, sponsored by Calabra, the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Calabra's electronic lab notebook, scientists can work together in real time, sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at calabra.app, C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.